0: Matthew chapter 5. As we come to chapter 5 in Matthew, we're at the beginning of what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. It lasts for three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Matthew records not only this long sermon of Jesus, but there's another one in Matthew 13, the Kingdom Parables, the Mysteries of the Kingdom, and then, if you're interested, another long sermon is given in Matthew 24, which deals with the signs of the second coming of Jesus Christ and of the end of the age. So, three major discourses of Jesus recorded by Matthew in this great gospel. But we come to the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon where many have misunderstood it. And Unfortunately, many have looked to the Sermon on the Mount as their personal rule of life, their ethic, the principles of right conduct, that if they live them and obey them, they believe that by doing this, they will have eternal life. And many people are sort of like the rich young ruler, if you remember the story of the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and said, Good Master, what thing must I do that I might inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments, and gave the commandments to him that had to do with, uh, you know, just the basics of the law. And he said to Jesus, all these I have kept from my youth up. That's what he thought. He thought that he had kept all of the commandments of God from the time that he was a little boy. But he hadn't, and he didn't realize that he hadn't. And so those that are looking at the Sermon on the Mount and saying, okay, this is the ethic that I must believe in, and this is the only thing I really need, I don't need the rest of the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount will suffice, thank you. And by doing this, they will have eternal life. But it's a foolish claim because the Sermon on the Mount does nothing to justify us at all. The problem with the approach of looking at the Sermon on the Mount as the way to have eternal life is, number one, there is no gospel in this sermon. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is defined by what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, and rose again from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, you don't find those truths in the Sermon on the Mount. There's no Calvary in the Sermon on the Mount. There's no burial. There's no resurrection in the Sermon on the Mount. There's nothing in the Sermon that can save. All the Sermon does is point out our need for a Savior. For anybody who actually reads the Sermon, it's obvious that we're not keeping it. And for anyone who actually reads the Sermon, it's obvious that we cannot live up to it. Actually, the Sermon on the Mount is sort of like the Law of Moses on steroids, I mean, it goes way beyond even what we might ordinarily think the law means. It's demanding, and it's the law in its most demanding form. So, therefore, since there is no gospel in the sermon, there's no salvation coming directly through it anyway. The second problem with that approach to the Sermon on the Mount, that it's something we can do to be saved, is that there's nothing in the sermon that gives us the power to actually live it. And how is it that we live the Christian life? By what power does a Christian, a true believer, live the Christian life? The answer is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We all know that. But there is no mention of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Sermon on the Mount. There's no clue as to how to receive the power to do the things that are contained in it. Therefore, it would be foolish to say that this is the ethic that if I keep it, I'll have eternal life, because there's no gospel in it, and there's no power in it to do what it says. What the Sermon on the Mount is, it's the ethic of the kingdom of God. It's been called the kingdom manifesto. Many believe, and I'm one of them, that this is going to be the universal ethic that is obeyed and maintained when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom on the earth. And only then, when people live this way, will there be peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Well, how does the sermon start? This is what we're going to look at this morning. The sermon starts with what is commonly called the Beatitudes. the, The conditions of blessedness. The place of blessedness. The Beatitudes. And these Beatitudes deal with the relationship that we as subjects of the kingdom have with ourselves it deals with the relationship that we as subjects of the kingdom have with ourselves and the beatitudes all by themselves are incredibly searching and very much show us our need for the gospel what would our life look like as true subjects of Christ's kingdom if we respond to the gospel, and if we live by the power that is contained in it. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning as we read this sermon, uh, this part of the sermon, is we're going to see the students of the sermon, we're going to see the inner life of the subjects of the kingdom, and then we're going to look at the outward manner of life of the subjects of the kingdom, and then the reaction of the world toward the subjects of the kingdom. So who are the students of this sermon? Look at verse 5, verse 1 of chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, then he opened his mouth and taught them saying. So it's clear that the primary recipients of this message were the disciples of Jesus. We see that in verse 1. What is a disciple? It's a follower. It's someone who is pursuing understanding from the Master. So his disciples, those who at that point in his ministry were pursuing him for knowledge of things spiritual, they were the ones that were taught this sermon. But there is a broader application. When we come to the end of the sermon, we'll see that many heard him speak these words and were astonished because of the authority with which he taught them. So... It was intended also for a wider audience. So he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying in the very first beatitude, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the passage doesn't say anything about how to become poor in spirit. It doesn't give us any clues. It only says that those who are poor in spirit, have the kingdom of heaven, and are blessed. So what's the meaning? The meaning is only those who recognize how spiritually impoverished and poor they are will be blessed and will have the kingdom of heaven. That's it. Only when a person realizes, I have nothing. Now how is this produced? How is this sense of spiritual poverty produced? We can't produce it in and of ourselves. It's something that's produced through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows a human being their spiritual poverty. He's the one that does that. John 16, he convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And when the Holy Spirit brings that conviction, a person is laid low. If you've never been laid low by the Holy Spirit then there are issues there that you have. It's important to be laid low by the Holy Spirit, to come to that place where, man, I don't have a single thing that I can offer God or anybody else. I'm poor in spirit. The Spirit produces that. A number of years ago, I knew in my heart of hearts, and somebody actually asked me this question, where do you think you're going to go when you die? My honest question, not my hopeful answer, but my honest answer was, if I died today, I I believe that I would go to hell. That was a shocking thing for me to admit about myself. But I still didn't know my spiritual poverty. Not until my girlfriend at the time, Lynn, boldly took the time to spend about 30 minutes to tell me the kind of person I really was not the person that i thought i was but she told me the person that i really was and the holy spirit used her words to lay me low i was then for the very first time in my life hopeless and helpless and knew that i needed christ blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven are you poor in spirit if not can you trust the lord to produce that in you and the answer hopefully is yes the next beatitude in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Now mourning obviously has to do with grieving, and the mourning in the context is grieving over sin. And the great and classic example in the scripture is the example of Isaiah the prophet. You can go back and read this later if you've not read it before. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet sees the Lord on his throne the glorious manifestation of the presence of God. And when he saw the Lord, this was his reaction. Woe is me, he said. I am undone. In other words, I'm a mess. (laughs) I'm a basket case. I got issues. All kinds of them. Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That sense of woe is me, I am undone. That's mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Now, this mourning over our own personal ex- sin is something that extends even to the time where we're beginning our lives as Christians and continuing to live as Christians. We still have that mourning over sin. Do you mourn over your own sin? or your own sinfulness, or your own capacity to commit sin. That's what's being said here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Remember Paul the Apostle. He had an increasing awareness of his own sinfulness. Initially, he was the least of the apostles, he wrote. Then later he wrote, I'm the least of all saints. And then later he wrote, I'm the chiefest of sinners. The more he grew in the Lord, the more aware he was of his own sinfulness. Do you mourn over your own sin how can that happen that happens when the Holy Spirit helps us to mourn over our own sin as we see the Lord now when we mourn over our own sins and we really are mourning over our own capacity to commit sin only then can we mourn over the sins of others because until we get to that place when we consider the sins of others we don't mourn we point fingers But when we see our own sins, we we stop the finger pointing and we actually mourn over the sins of others. But blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. And oh, how thankful we are for the comforting power of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are the meek, the next beatitude, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus himself was meek. He described himself as that. The idea behind this is that a person is broken very much like a horse who needs to be broken in order to be ridden now when the horse is broken it can be ridden but the horse doesn't lose any of its power so therefore meekness is not weakness there's still a great amount of strength in a meek person but a meek person has made a decision not to use all the strength he or she has but maintains a gentle or a meek attitude there's a brokenness then, and that's when the Holy Spirit begins to work in a person's life. And that's the only way a person can become meek is by the Holy Spirit. The idea is here, since I'm poor in spirit, and I have nothing, and since I mourn and I grieve over the condition that my sinful self is in, that means that I have nothing but that which I've received. That gives me the ability to be meek. So if I'm challenged, or if I'm criticized, or if I'm persecuted, or accused of something that I didn't do, if I'm operating in meekness, since all I have is what I've received, I have nothing to defend. So I don't have to come back, I don't have to respond, I don't have to be defensive, I can just take it. I can just accept it. Meekness takes a lot more strength to be meek than it does to fire back. Stronger is the person who rules his own spirit than he who takes a city, it says in the Proverbs. And that's the idea of meekness. Meekness is what led John the Baptist to say of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. That was meekness. Even though John himself in his own right was Incredibly popular, and the knowledge of him was widespread. Meekness. Blessed are the meek. What happens to them? They shall inherit the earth, Jesus said. The next beatitude Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, obviously, this refers to our spiritual appetite. How hungry are we? Are we hungry for righteousness? Are we thirsty for righteousness? These are the basic drives. The word for hunger here is to be famished or to crave something. Jesus, after he was finished with 40 days of being tempted by the devil, afterwards was hungry. He was in a place of being famished. And strong desires at that time to eat once again. So here's the idea of spiritual appetite. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. What does it mean? Well, am I hungry to be right with God? Am I hungry to be in the right with God? Am I hungry to do the right thing in the Lord? Am I hungry to do righteous things? Am I hungry to live a righteous life? Am I thirsty for these things? Is it like when I'm famished for food? Is it like when I'm desperate for water when i'm about to die of thirst for water is it that serious and again these beatitudes are produced by the holy spirit and if you ask me am i hungering and thirsting for righteousness 24 7 i would have to be honest and say no i hunger for far too many other things than for righteousness too many times i don't have this drive like i should and that's why i need jesus That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Because he enables us to live the way we know we should live. Are we hungry? Are we thirsty to be right with God? That's a sad note that there are many professing American Christians who watch more TV in one day than they will read their Bibles in an entire week. You compare the periods of time and the length of time. Hunger and thirst... This beatitude measures our spiritual health. Because if a person is hungry, that shows that he's healthy. People that are sick and anemic aren't hungry. They lose their appetites. And people that are about to die and right at the brink of death, there's no more desire for water. They're past that. And so this indicates our spiritual health in many ways this is a piercing beatitude it's one that we need to keep in front of us a lot but here's the great thing blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they should be filled they should be satisfied that's the promise it's a wonderful thing satisfied by jesus himself now we get it all twisted around too many times and i've done this myself and this is how i interpret the beatitude And the way I seek to live my life sometimes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after satisfaction. Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness. And I think I'll be filled. But that's not what what it reads. And that's not the process. Only when I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. To be right with God. To be in the right with God. Am I really going to find out that great satisfaction that comes from God himself. That's where it comes from. Happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment in life is never arrived at by direct pursuit. It's always a byproduct of pursuing the right things. So these are the Beatitudes that deal with the inner life of the subject of the kingdom. They're piercing ones. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us to live this way because we don't by themselves live this way the next grouping has to do with the outward manner of life of the subjects of the kingdom verses five through seven or excuse me verses seven through nine blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy so now we're getting into our relationship with other people blessed are the merciful how do i treat others blessed are the merciful It has to do with having compassion for others, to having a feeling for others and the plight that they're in, and then reaching out to them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now again, in the natural, we're all self-centered, we're self-focused, we're oblivious to the needs of others, and we maintain our own needs and ignore the needs that are around us. And that's to our own shame. So we need the Holy Spirit to... Wake us up as to the needs of those that are around us and live a selfless and not a self-centered kind of a life. Now, when I am merciful to others, it's amazing, it comes back. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It comes back. Given it t- shall be given to you, good measure, pressed down and shaken together. It just tends to come back. People that are gracious people Tend to be the recipients of more grace. People that are merciful people tend to be the recipients of more mercy. People that are self righteous, judgmental people tend to be people that are more judged and condemned by others. It's just the way it is. So again, we're measured by this beatitude, our relationship with others. And then, blessed are the pure in heart, is the next beatitude, verse 8 for they shall see God. Right away, we're faced with this issue of being pure in heart. The Greek word is katharos. We get the word cauterize from this. Cleansing is often the way this word is translated or to be cleansed. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I think of the proverb in chapter 20 of the book of Proverbs that says, who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. And I I sure can. I wish my heart was purer than it is sometimes. But I find my heart being divided. David prayed in Psalm 86, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Because he, like every other believer uh, throughout all of the ages, struggles with this wrestling match within to keep the heart focused and centered and pure and undivided and pure in the things of God. So who can say, I've made my heart clean, I'm pure from my sin? The answer is no one. So how do we get there? We need the word of God, obviously, Hebrews 4. The word of God is quick and powerful, and it causes us to understand the thoughts and intention of of the heart. The word of God shows us the conditions of our heart. So a believer who doesn't read the Bible... And a believer who's not in the habit of regularly meditating on Scripture and studying Scripture is going to be a believer who really doesn't know the condition of their own heart because only the Word of God can show us these things. And again, how do we have a pure heart? Well, it's the blood of Christ that does it. The blood of Christ does it. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins... Can you finish it with me? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Very good. And the Holy Spirit cleanses our hearts to make it pure because only by walking in the Spirit is the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. Romans 8.4 So, blessed are the pure in heart. How do I keep my heart pure? The Word of God, the blood of Christ... The Holy Spirit working within me. And he will enable my heart to be pure and focused and centered and undivided by things that don't need to be part of it. And that's our great battle. Now if I am pure in heart, I'm going to be effective towards others. And then the next beatitude, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. What is a peacemaker? Well, it's somebody who makes peace. A peacemaker has to, first of all, be a peaceful person. Romans twelve eighteen. if it's possible, as much as lies within you, live at peace with all men. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, be, be at peace among yourselves. Be peaceful people. Don't be people that are stirring, stirring things up. There are people that are like that. You know, they come into a room and that you just know that chaos is going to result. Some sort of chaos. Some kind of drama is going to be... Stirred up all over the place. Because they're not peaceful people. But where does peace primarily come from? It comes from Jesus. Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus is our peace. Right? How did he create peace? How did he give us peace? Through his work on the cross. He died for us. Ephesians 2, read the passage, and you'll see that. And so we, as peacemakers, have to do primarily with the preaching of the gospel because that's how individuals come into peace with God. But also it's the application of the gospel that enables us to have peace with each other. If someone sits down with a couple and tries to help them through marital, marital conflict, what is that person doing? He or she is being a peacemaker, helping the couple through a time of marital conflict, uh, an area of disagreement. If someone hears gossip and listens to it, then what's that person doing? He's violating the conditions of peace and is being anything but a peacemaker. But if somebody hears the beginnings of gossip and doesn't listen and puts the hand out and says, I'm not going there, that person has acted as a peacemaker. The person who spreads rumors about others, unsubstantiated allegations about others, That person is anything but a peacemaker, but the person who refuses to speak about another, except for that which they could hear in their own presence, that person is a peacemaker. And it's very important that we be peacemakers in these days. The church needs the church body to be peacemakers, always the body of Christ, needs that type of an attitude. So here are the relationships that we have outside as members of the kingdom, verses 7 through 9. First, the inner life, then the way that life is manifest in relationship to others. Now, anybody who lives this way is going to be reacted to. And so there's a reaction of the world toward the subjects of the kingdom, and this is found for us in verses 10 through 12. The last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, first, the general principle, the beatitude, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first seven Beatitudes deal with character traits of the Christian believer, the person living as a subject of the kingdom. The eighth Beatitude, verse 10, deals with the reaction of the world to a person who lives that way. See, the the world loves the behavior of, of someone who lives the Beatitudes, but hates the source of the behavior. And once the source of the behavior is revealed, the world has a real hard time with it. The name of Jesus, the person of Jesus, is maligned in so many quarters. Because the world doesn't understand him, and the world doesn't know him. These are things Jesus himself said. The world doesn't like the source of our Christian lifestyles and attitudes as we live the Beatitudes. It rejects them. It feels threatened by these things and feels judged by these things. And often you'll hear someone in the world say, well, why do you judge so much? Why do you say that if I don't do it your way, that I'm not going to go to heaven? And our comeback immediately should be, I never said it. The Lord Jesus said it. You've got an issue with him. If you've got an issue at all, it's not with me. And this is why the world is so hard against the source of our lifestyle and attitude when they find out that it's Jesus that is doing these things. Again, you know, I'm just shocked at this Tim Tebow phenomenon. Coming back to that. I mean, here's the guy that just appears to be one of the nicest guys in the world and just what an encouraging player and what a model citizen on his team and everybody says the same thing about him. But they hate it that he gets down on his knees after a touchdown and thanks God and praises the Lord and asks for strength while he's sitting on the sideline. They miked his helmet in a recent game. And the number of times that he was encouraging people the number of times that he was praying the number of times he's asking the Lord for help during the game itself you know he'd get knocked on his can by some opposing player and he'd get up and he'd say hey good job good hit buddy you know can't, you know, can't wait for the next play I mean just living as a Christian out on the football field but they mock him in the secular media and there are those who actually hate Tim Timo. I have to conclude it's not because of the way he's living, it's because of the source of the way he's living. And that's what Jesus said would happen. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Notice that it's for righteousness' sake. If I'm persecuted for being a jerk, it doesn't count, there's no blessing there. But if I'm persecuted for righteousness' sake, it counts. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. and then he speaks directly to his disciples because they would very much experience persecuted these persecution, these same men and, and women to whom he was speaking. Blessed are you when notice that, when they revile and persecute you not if John 16:33. In the world you shall suffer persecution or tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. It's just going to happen. And what do we see in the book of Acts? These same believers who were here listening to Jesus that day. When they were commanded not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And when they were beaten as a result of it. What did they do? They went out from the presence of the religious leaders and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his namesake. That was their attitude. They did exactly what Jesus said in verse 12. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. They were living supernatural lives. Do you think it was them? Do you think it was they themselves that was, that was producing this kind of inner reaction and outward manifestation. No, it was the work of the Spirit in their lives. The Holy Spirit had taken them over and was working with them, so much so that when they were persecuted, the joy of the Holy Spirit overwhelmed them and overtook them in their pain and their grief. And gave them the ability to do exactly what Jesus said to do here. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And they were exceedingly glad. This isn't just a little bit glad. This is exceedingly glad. That they were counted worthy. To suffer shame for him. We see the same thing with Paul and Silas. In Philippi as they were thrown in jail. What were they doing that midnight? They were praying and they were singing hymns of praise to God even though they had been beaten with rods. Can't even imagine how painful that would be. Beaten with rods, bloodied and battered, yet they were worshiping the Lord, and the other prisoners were listening to them. They did what Jesus said here in verse 12, and they did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, So those are the Beatitudes. In a quick summary and in a nutshell. Now, if this was a test and we were all having to take some sort of a an examination as to how well we're doing with these things how well would you do have you been completely faithful to these things what's the answer come on now be answer be be honest no have i no what does that do for me What that does is it drives me to the one that loves me even though I need him. I need grace. It drives me to the one who gives grace, Jesus himself. It drives me to Calvary. But not just to Calvary to be forgiven so that I can remain in my pitiful disobedient self. But it takes me far beyond that and it takes me to the place where I long for the Holy Spirit to fill me. And the word of God to help me. So that I can live the way God has called me to live. And I need the Holy Spirit to do that. And it is my choice. Go beyond that. It's my responsibility to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And it's yours as well. How you doing? Did you get an F? Did you get a D? What are you going to do about the F? What are you going to do about the D? What are you going to do about the C? Or even the B? What am I going to do about these things? Hopefully, run to Jesus and seriously seek the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life to begin to fulfill these things again in my life. Now, this is all where the Christmas message fits in. So, this is how I'm going to tie it into the spirit of the holiday this morning. God gave his only begotten Son, right? He gave his only begotten Son. That was a gift. Why did he give his only begotten son? So that we could be forgiven. So that we could know what the truth is. So that we could be accepted by God and not perish. He gave his only son so that we could have a savior because we need a savior. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount shows us is that we need a savior. More than anything else, that's what this sermon does. It shows us our need for a savior. And so that's what Jesus came to provide, his salvation, forgiveness, acceptance with God. But not just that, he came to give us life. And it's the life of Jesus that he gave us that enables us to live the way these beatitudes are laid out. Jesus himself, he's the only one. He's the only one that's ever lived the Beatitudes perfectly and what was the secret of his life he said I always do those things that please the father and what was the secret to him always doing those things that please the father God gave the spirit without measure to him he walked in the power of the Holy Spirit as the God man And the very life that he has lives within the true believer so that we can trust him for it. That's the good news. Amen? Amen. High standards. But isn't it worthy of our Lord that he would present standards like this to us? And isn't it worthy of the Lord that we should respond and obey by depending upon him? Amen. Let's pray we thank you lord so much this morning that not only do you show us what the life that you desire looks like and these verses are full of attitudes that are so right and so pure and so much the way they ought to be that our hearts can readily agree and say amen to them they just are right we should be poor in spirit because we have nothing we ought to mourn we ought to be meek and all of these things we just agree we consent with the spirit of the law and say it is good but at the same time we recognize that we need a savior for those of us that have already accepted jesus as savior and as lord we thank you that he has come into our lives and give us an understanding and because we now have the son of god we have the life we thank you for that We thank you that you've forgiven us and that you've accepted us and you've lived within us and you've given us a future and a hope. We pray for those that are discouraged this morning about the way they've been living, maybe feeling overwhelmed by their own sinfulness or their own inability to deal with issues in life. We pray that the Holy Spirit might provide great comfort and help even at this very moment. And, Lord, we also pray for those that have never yet made a commitment to Jesus and have not responded to the gospel message but somehow have decided that they can live a good enough life to be saved. We pray that the Holy Spirit provide conviction this morning to prove that that is not at all the case. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. If there's anyone here this morning that has never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, here's an opportunity for you to do that. You can raise your hand right now and you can just say to me, Bill, I want to receive Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I want to be right with God. I'll pray for you and you can, right where you're sitting this morning, you can receive Jesus Christ and the eternal life that comes from him. Is there anyone here this morning who would like to make that commitment for the first time? Raise your hand high. Let me see it so that I can know how to pray for you and you can personally receive Jesus Christ into your life and his forgiveness anybody this morning It's your time. Anyone this morning? Let's use this time as we're praying just to focus and reflect on the truth of these beatitudes and prepare our hearts for communion. You can go down the list if you want and you can say that's not me, that's not me or thank you for that Lord thank you for helping me in this area however you want to process it. Good time to just practice confession and talk to the Lord about your need for him preparing your hearts to receive the elements which represent his broken body and his shed blood